This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. In a life and death situation, minutes count. But imagine calling 911 and there aren't enough ambulances available to respond right away. That's in addition to intensive care units across the state reaching their limits. We spoke with Dr. Jim Ireland, the director of the city's emergency medical services yesterday afternoon, about the snapshot here on, on, in Honolulu. How would you characterize our situation? Are we in a crisis mode? Right at the edge. I think, right at the edge. You know, there were some times over the weekends where there were 28, 29 calls, you know, for ambulances. And, you know, normally we only have 21 ambulances, sometimes a few more, sometimes a few less. And so if there's 28 or 29 calls for service, that means some of those don't get responded to right away. You know, they'll still get the fire department as long as they have resources to at least start treatment before we get there. But, you know, over the weekend, there was a huge fire at the Patsy Mink Park, and there was a multiple rescues going on. And so they're, they're also very, very busy. What's happened in the last three months is during, during COVID, when everything was shut down, our call volume actually went down by about 10 or 20 percent because people staying home, they're being careful. People weren't going to bars and you know, getting in bar fights and this sort of thing. But then the tourists came back and, and most of the people who live here kind of went back to maybe not a normal routine, but you know, going out to the beach and doing stuff. And so people are having the normal type of 911 calls that we see just kind of all the time, but now we also have, over the last especially two weeks, increasing calls for COVID-related problems, low oxygen levels, fever, chills, shortness of breath. You know, a lot of patients that are sick with COVID, they're not in the hospital. Now, there's a lot in the hospital. On Oahu today, there's 250 people with COVID in the hospital as of this morning. So that's a lot of people, but there's many, many more people that are at home being monitored either by health systems, doctors, the health department. And one of those monitoring techniques is a pulse oximeter or a oxygen measurement that they do on their finger. And if these monitors are getting readings below 92%, they're actually calling 911 on behalf of the patient being monitored at home. So we're getting a bunch of those calls where People themselves aren't even calling, but whoever the monitoring agency is is calling us and saying, we have a known COVID patient, they're sick, but they weren't in the hospital, oxygen level's low, please go you know, check them out, and then we'll go, and usually they have to go to the hospital. And what can you tell us about the, the snapshot of, of the you know, EMTs and the paramedics? I mean, Mayor Blangiardi was saying that you were dealing with the shortage. You had staffers that were either exposed to a positive case that were quarantined or people that were just sick. Right. And it's a mixture of things. Our, our department, just like many other first responder agencies, does have um, some shortages. Now, we're starting an, like an academy in a week or two where we're going to have 24 new people. We just hired 10 new people that graduated from KCC. So by the end of the year, the numbers are going to be are going to be good. But, you know, we still have four months for the end of the year. And, you know, we do have personnel who are on quarantine right now. We have somebody who just tested positive. We have people who are, you know, out sick. And, you know, this has been a, a long, prolonged disaster, if you will. You know, when you have to deal with a hurricane or in, not, not here in Hawaii, but other places like an earthquake or some other disaster that kind of happens abruptly, it usually ends in a week or two weeks. So what agencies have to ask their people is, hey, step up work 60 or 80 hours a week, and in, in two weeks, it'll be over. And most people who are in EMS do it because they want to serve the public, and they'll do it. They'll come and they'll work and they'll you know, sacrifice their own personal time and their family's time for the greater good. And that's really doable in two or three weeks for a hurricane or what have you. But now this has been a 18 months. Nobody can do that amount of work over prolonged periods of time. And I think people are, are, are getting exhausted. And the COVID protocols for cleaning the equipment and cleaning the ambulance is adding 20 to 40 minutes onto the backs of each call so they can't get back in service as quick. The call volume is going up. So it's just really busy. And we're at a, we're at a kind of a critical, critical time right now in, in, in on Oahu. Mayor Blangiardi mentioned that he uh, reached out to the fire department, uh, I think the United Public Workers Union, just to try and get some help. He, he mentioned that a number of firefighters either are, are, are licensed to be able to do some of the work. And I don't know if it's driving ambulances or dealing with patients in a first aid situation. Well, the Honolulu Fire Department has about uh, somewhere around 100 
firefighters that have either a state license for emergency medical technician or paramedic. And by law, two people on the ambulance have to hold those licenses. And so we have had some preliminary discussions with the Honolulu Fire Department. If the condition on Oahu deteriorates, could they loan us some of their personnel, their licensed personnel, to assist in patient care as a crew member or, or driving the ambulance or just to be part of our team? We're all on the same team anyway. We all go to, you know, EMS goes to fire calls sometimes. The fire department goes to a lot of the critical medical calls. And so we're very accustomed to working with each other, and we have a great working relationship. But this would be kind of one step beyond that where, where, that, where we're actually asking them to come be a crew member on the ambulance. And we're doing it, and we may do it because of just the increase in call volume. But we're also recognizing that the fire department is very, very busy as well. They're doing assisting with some of the swabbing and testing sites. They're going on a record number of rescue calls because I think because people have been cooped up for so long, uh, people who live here, the military, tourists, they're enjoying the hikes and they're enjoying the mountains, but people are getting into trouble and they're going on multiple rescues every day, which ties up their resources. So we're sensitive to that, but we're all just trying to put our heads together to figure out what's the best way to maintain services as the requests are going higher and higher and higher. On a practical point, how does that work when the firefighters volunteer? I mean, do they do this on top of their regular shift or are they just on loan, let's say, for part of the evening or the day when you are low on staff? I think the way this could work potentially is if the the firefighter uh, happened to be on their day off and they would come spend 12 hours on the ambulance working with EMS, they would still be paid by the fire department. Since it was their day off, they would be you know paid overtime. And then at the end of however long this is going to take, the fire department gives EMS a bill for their um, labor costs, and then and then EMS just transfer those funds to, to the fire department for help. And again, this is still very preliminary, not something we necessarily need today, but we want to have all options on the table if over the next one to six weeks the situation with COVID deteriorates and we don't have enough ambulances to answer all the calls or enough personnel. Now, here on Oahu, we're hearing different stories about the patient census count, you know, whether there are enough uh, ICU beds available. And and I know, you know, they've got to manage that. But uh, on some days, I'm sure it's pretty tight. Well, yes. And so when EMS responds on a 911 call, patient goes to the emergency room. Now, normally, in a normal situation, they're evaluated by the emergency room doctor. And then from there, if they are sick enough to stay in the hospital, They'll go to the ICU or to the hospital regular general ward or floor, and they leave the ER. They go upstairs. What's happening now is there's no room at the hospital, and they're full. So they're taking people who are admitted to the hospital, and they are in the ER. And I've heard one ER, one patient, he was on his 91st hour in the ER, so whatever that comes out to, almost four days in the ER, waiting to get a room somewhere in the hospital. Now, the problem with that is if the ER has 30 beds or rooms for patients, but they're holding 22 of them for hospital admissions, that means they're not turning over those 30 beds. They only have eight beds they're turning over. And the same volume of people is coming into the ER. Now, so far, the ERs have been able to handle all that on Oahu, but they are asking the ambulances to go to other ERs. They're going on EMS reroute and diver, and we're trying to accommodate that. But at some point, if they run out of even beds to put people in, even in the ER, ambulances or people who walk into the ER, then we're talking about they're going to have to set up some kind of tent somewhere on the property or convert the cafeteria into a patient care area. Pretty extreme measures, but I would say that kind of stuff could happen by the end of the week if the volume and the increases keep coming. You know, like I said this morning, Oahu hospitals are at 250 patients with COVID in the hospitals. And if we go back three or four months, that number was maybe 25. And so so they are um, working hard, but really there's nearly no room at the end at this point. And not just one hospital. We're talking about basically every hospital on Oahu. So we're in a bad spot right now. And then how does this work on the neighbor islands? So that's a problem, too, because, number one, you know, I saw a news report that Hilo Hospital is at ICU beds. They're full. But a lot of services that Oahu has aren't available on the neighbor islands. So, for instance, if you need open-heart surgery, they don't do that on Kauai. So those patients then get put in an air ambulance and get transferred from Wilcox to Queens or Straub or Kaiser or wherever they are going to have that done on Oahu. Well, if there's no beds on Oahu for any reason, those neighbor island patients aren't going to be accepted for transfer, even though the surgery or the procedure they need is on Oahu. Potentially, those transfers will be blocked 
because the receiving hospital does not have the capacity to hold that patient. And so you may get patients on the neighbor islands needing what's called tertiary care or advanced medical or surgical care that are stuck on the neighbor islands. They, they can't come over. So it's not just an effect on Oahu. It's really throughout the state. It's kind of a ripple ripple effect. And, and I'm sure that's what we're seeing now because I don't know how a hospital can bring somebody over from the neighbor island when they have 22 patients in the emergency room that they can't even get beds for. So, I mean, at this point, it's definitely all hands on deck. I think all the agencies are doing everything they can. And, you know, quite frankly, you know, when the vaccines became available in December and January, there was so much interest and desire to get vaccinated for so many people. But I guess for me personally, I guess I just didn't anticipate that there would be a section of the population that wasn't interested in the vaccination or didn't think it was important or didn't think it was right for them. And, you know, if we all would have been vaccinated by June, we probably wouldn't be in, in the situation we're in now. But the percentage of people that didn't get vaccinated, coupled with the Delta variant, I think that six months ago, we couldn't have predicted the aggressiveness of the Delta variant. So I think those two factors got us to where we are today. And it feels really like it did a year ago, a little dire. The bright spot right now is vaccines are available. They weren't available a year ago. And so there is still hope for everybody who hasn't been vaccinated to at least protect themselves. I think it's also worth noting that 90 plus percent of the people that are being hospitalized for COVID in Hawaii right now are unvaccinated. You know, less than 10 percent are vaccinated. So critically ill patients, the vast, vast majority of them are unvaccinated. And that's just the reality that the vaccines do protect people from severe COVID infections and from death. That was Honolulu Emergency Medical Services Director, Dr. Jim Ireland, talking to us about the staffing challenges at EMS. Dr. Ireland says in addition to trying to tap firefighters who may be willing to fill in the gaps, EMS administrators and retirees are also in the mix. He says everything is on the table and has to be part of the conversation to prepare if things get worse over the next several weeks. Kauai Mayor Derek Kawakami is urging residents and visitors to heed the directive from State Health Director Libby Char to take responsibility to mask up and get vaccinated to help get the number of COVID cases back down again. Kauai's latest cases of the coronavirus include children who may not yet be eligible for the vaccines. We talked to Mayor Kawakami this morning. We're trying to have our constituents and our people sort of shift their focus on instead of looking at the daily case counts to kind of take a look at that seven-day weekly average because that gives you a more accurate, up-to-date benchmark of where we're at. But I don't think anybody has to really look hard to see that we have a lot of cases. We have a lot of kids that are starting to get sick. And we still have a large amount of young children whose parents intend to get them vaccinated when it becomes available. And they're trying to do everything that they can to keep their children safe, and most importantly, in school. We really don't want to see too many clusters happening in schools because right now, school is the best place for kids to be. So we are very concerned. On another note, you know, we talk regularly with our hospital system here on Kauai, and I know that all the hospitals have been pushed to the red line. And, you know, for us, we're very aware of that, but we communicate on a regular basis with our hospital system to see how they're doing. Kauai, fortunately, so far, knock on wood, has had rather low hospitalization rate. Many people are recovering, but unfortunately, you know, we're starting to see some fatalities. Recently, we had two. How many uh, ICU beds do you have? Well, they're still reporting 11, okay. right? But they do have what they call surge capacity. But that's another area where I would like our people to understand that we could have 100 ICU beds. That's not the problem. The problem is having skilled staff and ICU nurses, because it is specialized, that are able to treat patients in those beds and not get burnt out as well. So I know a lot of people have said, you know, why aren't we building more ICU beds with the money? And one, we're not in the business of building ICU beds, but what we need is we need people to stay healthy. And we do have a lack of ICU nurses. We saw the Big Island get their first batch this week. And Wahoo, I think, gets theirs Monday. I just talked to Jen Chanovich at Wilcox Memorial Hospital. 
yesterday, and she said they'll be receiving their federal support as far as manpower. I just don't know when, but she did confirm that Koi will be getting ours, too. You know, we just talked to Dr. Jim Ireland with the EMS here in Honolulu, and he expressed a concern about a problem with his staff. They've reached out to the fire department and UPW, you know, to see if there's some way that firemen can volunteer, you know, if uh, the EMS crews are shorthanded. But he also said that, you know, the concern is with the ICU beds filling up here on Oahu, that if there's anybody on the neighbor islands that's got, you know, a severe issue, open heart surgery or whatever, they've got to uh, fly to Honolulu, but there may not be a bed for them. Yeah, of course, it's always a concern. I mean, you know, especially for the rural communities and for Kauai, most of our, you know, really severe cases, um, if they can't be treated here, they deem it a, a better shot to fly them over and get treated on Oahu. Many of our patients are getting flown over. You know, my dad himself, when he was alive, had to get medevac. So I know how stressful that is. My wife's dad had to get medevac. So we understand how stressful that is. It, it's a real situation. But, you know, unfortunately for many people, they're not really thinking that far ahead until it happens to them or a loved one, right? And so when we say, hey, you know, we should be concerned about this, you know, it's a community effort, you know, what about this and what about that? A lot of people are like, well, you know, I'm I'm probably not going to need to use a hospital bed on Oahu. That's the thing that I think leaders wrestle with is how do we get the community to look outside of themselves, right, at times. And what is the mood of the community when it comes to, you know, the mandatory vaccines? Because, you know, we're seeing, you know, the government sector and uh, uh, private sector step up to require vaccines for their staff or for their patrons. One, I I think there is a misunderstanding because it is not a mandate. You know, as employers, we provided our existing associates the option of getting vaccinated, which a majority of our workforce has, or get tested. And it's for some very simple reasons. One, as a mayor of the county of Kauai, I am obligated to make sure that I can provide services to our general public. And considering that we are still in a hurricane season, we are still in brush fire season, and we have a number of critical infrastructure and critical services that we provide, I cannot afford to have a crew go down and and be sick for 10 days and have a whole bunch of close contacts having to quarantine because that would mean a tremendous disruption in services. We we don't have a second string or a backup crew or, you know, we can't meet those needs. And so we said from the beginning, the best way to mitigate the spread of a virus is prevention, which, you know, wearing masks, getting a vaccine or detection, early detection through testing being able to identify positive cases are are the two best tools we have. So we said, look, you can choose whichever one you want. And on our end, we're going to try and see and we make this as easy as possible. But this is the way uh, our workforce will contribute. And it should be noted as well that for new hires coming in, then it will be a requirement. That would be a mandate for new hires who are not a part of our County of Kauai organization. They're going to have to make that choice on whether it's worth it for them to get vaccinated or not if they want employment at the county. So in that sense, new hires, yes, there is no choice. The governor recently said that uh, as far as the the management on the size and the crowd restriction, that it would be up to the counties to oversee and make sure that the businesses have uh, you know proper mitigation plans. So how are you handling yeah. that? Well, it's, it's simple. I mean, basically under the governor's emergency proclamation, it says any... Uh, professionally organized events over 50 have to uh, inform and consult with the county. So we just created a portal. All people have to do, the organizers, is go to the portal on our website, put down their information, contact information, and we have a set of guidelines. And then our team looks at it, reviews it, and if they got to go back and forth and sort of um, get to a consensus that we feel it's relatively safe, you know, it's good to go. So, you know, we set that structure up pretty quickly after we saw the governor's order. Is that working out okay? I think so. Already organizations are reaching out to the portal. You know, people that have planned events prior to the change have have reached out. And like always, we're offering them guidance. And for the most part, they're all complying. I I know a lot of people are, are very concerned about the uptick in case. State leadership on down to all the mayors and all of our emergency management agencies, we're all brainstorming. What's the pragmatic way forward? And we're all concerned about the increased case counts. And what has us really concerned this time around 
is the hospitalization rate and, of course, these young children that are becoming sick. For the most part, people that are fully vaccinated should understand that, you know, there's going to be times where you you have to make adjustments. Uh, Nobody saw this Delta variant coming, and, you know, that requires all of us, whether vaccinated or not, to just uh, go back to the tools that we know work. You know, if you can distance yourself, that's great. If you can avoid going to humongous gatherings, you know, that's great too. If you can wear a mask indoors, those are all tools to help you from getting sick in general. And I would like to say that, you know, for the most part, we're going we're to get through this. We have areas of concern. And it boils down to, as Dr. Char said, personal behavior. Case counts will settle down when people settle down. But that requires personal commitment and personal discipline. That was Kauai Mayor Derek Kawakami talking to us this morning about the COVID snapshot on the Garden Isle. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Par Hawaii, an energy company whose nearly 700 employees are committed to a culture of safety and customer service. Learn more at parhawaii.com. We live in an on-demand world, and HPR is here for you wherever and whenever you want to listen. Get the best of our local talk shows in podcast form. You can have The Conversation, Bite Marks Cafe, The Body Show, and more. Delivered right to your phone or device as soon as they're released. Plus, subscribe to features like Manu Minute and Off the Road with Dave Lawrence. For the full list, just head to our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, welcoming the community to enjoy the museum's galleries and outdoor courtyards until 9 p.m. on Friday and Saturday evenings. Admission tickets at honolulumuseum.org. For today's reality check, Honolulu Civil Beat looks at the business landscape when it comes to mandatory vaccines for customers. Reporter Stuart Yurton joins us today. Good morning. Good morning, Catherine. So, yeah, this is a sticky one. <laughs> go, go, showing your vaccination card before you can go into a restaurant. Yes, it's very sticky. Um, but the reality is that uh, government officials are talking about something like this. Uh, and uh, business people are, at least for now, not completely dismissing it out of hand. Uh, industry groups are taking a close look at it and trying to figure out if this is something that needs to be done and they would be willing to do. Yeah. And I've been you know, reading about how they've started it in New York and San Francisco. Yeah, so they, they're doing it there. And again, you need to show proof of vaccination to get into restaurants, uh, gyms, I believe, in, in New York and some other venues and places. Uh, the idea, um, and this is one of the, the business leaders uh, discussed, posed it as a, a rewards program here. Uh, this is Ray Vera, the CEO of Hawaii Pacific Health, which operates some big uh, hospitals here. And he was saying, look, think of it as a rewards program. If, if you get the vaccination, you can do certain things that otherwise you wouldn't be able to do. Yes. And we saw how, uh, oh, gosh, it was about a week or so uh, that uh, House Speaker Scott Psyche put out a news release saying he thought that the governor needed to do more uh, to try right. and get these numbers down. Exactly. Well, this is one of his things that he said, too. So so he's posed it. Uh, Josh Green mentioned it as a reality. Uh, the lieutenant governor wasn't exactly uh, uh, advocating it, but saying this could be a reality. So, yeah, it's, it's being discussed at very high levels. And again, what was interesting was the business community f- is not dismissing it out of hand. In fact, they're saying we're going to discuss it with our members and try to figure out what what would work? Would we be willing to do this? Yeah, because what we're talking about is the employees, the businesses having to kind of police it, right? They're going to have to be checking at the door. 
Well, yes, and that's something that the Retail Merchants Association mentioned. They said, look, if we're going to be expected to do this, we would have, they're not exactly for it, but they'd say we, we would need some kind of tools or something for enforcement. You know, as, as you mentioned um, earlier uh, today, the we both know of situations where restaurants tried to do this and they got such a backlash from customers that they said, we're not going to try to do it. Um, this is something where... In some ways, businesses would welcome the government stepping in and mandating it because then they, the businesses that wanted to do it wouldn't be in the position of, of having customers fight back. They could say, look, this is a mandate that's required by government. Right. So that's, but, a, that's a benefit, a positive of doing this. Yeah, I mean, we did see the pushback just on the mask wearing. Right, yes, and that's what we're hearing. It's hard enough to enforce people wearing masks sometimes. People get angry. So it, it's really a... Um, it, w- it would, in some cases, be easier, but again, there's so many problems and so many challenges with it that it's hardly something the businesses are roundly welcoming. Yeah, because you know you've got to stop and, and weigh everything because things were uh, starting to open up. We've got the visitors here; people were going out, you know, to eat, uh, you know, feeling more relaxed. Uh, you know, whether the, those are the folks that the, got the vaccines, you know, willing to get out of their comfort zone and to get back to normal in some sense. Uh, but yeah, it's, uh, you know, a big question mark as to what's going to happen with this uh, Delta variant and if we're going to see fewer crowds. Well, and that's, that's the thing, you know, you mentioned what people getting out of their comfort zone and doing stuff. You know, the, the problem is we're starting to see a little bit of data, um, that people are, uh, retrenching a bit on their own, even without any kind of government, um, mandates or government restrictions or anything like what we're talking about, uh, restaurant reservations seem to be edging down a little bit. This is according to the open table uh, reservation data that's available. Um, Some of the mobility, maybe shopping, tailing down. We're definitely hearing airlines. There were national stories about the airlines uh, softening a bit more than they expected in terms of uh, their uh, passengers even more than they expected during the shoulder season. And same with the hotels, we're hearing that they are hearing about cancellations as well, all because of this Delta variant. So, you know, businesses are having to look at this and figure out, well, what are we going to do? What's our path forward? Because if nothing's done, then it could hurt the businesses anyway. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we're in a bit of a pickle while waiting to see what happens uh, with those numbers. But thanks so much, Stuart. Thank you, Catherine. That was reporter Stuart Yurton with today's Reality Check. Read his story online at civilbeat.org. economist Paul Brubaker long warned the day was coming when the average price of homes would hit a million dollars. That day came for both Kauai and Maui, and in July, their real estate uh, guide locations reported that Oahu hit that benchmark. Honolulu Board of Realtors numbers were just shy of that seven-digit figure. But here's what Brubaker thinks is happening in the market and in the economy. What I think is important about the July numbers is that it hasn't actually changed very much from the June and the May number. So when I seasonally adjust, I get 984 in May, 974 in June, and 993 in July. So median prices published by the Honolulu Board of Realtors, but adjusted by me for seasonality, median single-family home prices have seemed to have hit a ceiling about $1.380 below one million. You know, they just went right up to and stopped at a million the last three months. Whereas a year ago, we were talking sevens and eights. So that explosion that occurred in the 12 months from, say, May of last year to May of this year appears to have lost the energy that was driving it in the early months of recovery from a recession related to COVID which we now know ended in April of 2020. Like the official announcement is that the recession started in February and it ended in April. So it was super fast. It was super deep. And 
we have to reframe our thinking because we've been living with COVID for more than a year. But for the entirety of the last year, certainly since May of last year, what we should have been interpreting is the nature of the economic recovery rather than recession. We just don't know these things at the time. I mean, when you're down at the bottom getting beat up and people are dropping dead, you have other things to be concerned about. But now, of course, you know, we can look back and see this explosive period of appreciation from May of last year to May of this year. And on Oahu, it looks like it has begun to peter out a little bit after jumping from around 800,000 to nearly 1 million. And as I observed earlier, it's breached the 1 million mark on Kauai and Maui. I mean, we're talking 1.1 million, you know, in round numbers on Maui and Kauai. We're still in that seller's market kind of environment. However, it's important if it continues that the rise in prices has tapered off. There's still some upward ratcheting, but it's not this explosion of 20% that happened over the 12 months from the spring of last year to the spring of this year. It's important to understand the 20% increase in median single-family home prices on Oahu, which was incorporating seasonality, a steady rise from month to month over a 12-month period. It's important to recognize that it began to peter out in May. June and July were, you know, around the same or slightly higher uh, prices, but still shy of a million by about $5. And that this pattern of rising for a year at 20% and then petering out over a subsequent quarter suggests, perhaps, that it was never really a bubble. It's more like what I've been calling a tiny bubble, like the Kui Lee song, (laughs) that something happened that was uniquely associated with the COVID event and and the recovery that came after that brief and intense recession. You'll recall collapse in financial asset prices in the stock market and whatnot back in the late winter and early spring, and basically March and April of 2020. So if it had been a true bubble, which I don't think it is, the idea of 20% price appreciation year after year after year, you know, for five years or something of that sort, where you end up doubling over a period of five years, that's what customarily we've associated with housing bubbles, benchmarked to the late 1980s Japan bubble and the more recent kind of subprime bubble, you know, the explosion and prices that occurred in the early 2000s. And then, as you'll recall, precipitated a financial crisis and the deepest, longest recession until now, until recently, since the Great Depression at that time, more than 10 years ago in 2008, 2009. 20% increase in prices is still a 20% increase in prices. Nobody's going back. And as most people are finding when they list their homes, there's still plenty of buyers that are out there. But again, something, while bubblicious, is uniquely associated with the nature of the underlying economic and indeed biological event that that drove it. And another way to see this is that that 20% increase in single-family home prices on Oahu is not showing up in condos. Not really. Not to the same degree of vigor and intensity, or more specifically, not in the rate of price appreciation that you observe in the single-family segment. So it's something about detached dwellings and this what's sometimes called the donut effect where people who now can work remotely are moving to the suburbs or the exurbs or to Zoom towns on Kauai and Maui, as the case may be. And then when you look at Maui data, for example, it's not all of Maui, it's West Maui. When you look at Maui County, it's Molokai. You have to think about that for a while. Mm. (laughs) You know, where... What was the hottest market in Maui County uh, in 2020? Answer, Molokai. Well, that had to be like five transactions. I'm just saying there's a very idiosyncratic pattern of demand expression associated with a sudden one-time shift towards a higher proportion of the workforce enabled uh, to work remotely. The discovery by many employers that is just fine. It's even more productive or more broadly, I think where we end up is in a kind of a hybrid environment where people sort of organize their workplaces uh, around the best attributes of both work, working remotely as well as collaboration well, in so, a common workspace. So if that's then the snapshot for real estate, I mean, just the fact that, you know, 
we're seeing the surge of cases with this variant. What's your take on what's going to happen with our economy? Remember what we got wrong in March of 2020 as we were first, we listened to a guy who told us that like a miracle, it would disappear by April. So we got that totally wrong. But on top of that, we all thought at the time that as is with the case customarily with catastrophic events, that people would withdraw from risky asset classes like stocks and houses and commodities and retreat to the safe haven of government bonds or cash. And, and indeed, that increase in the demand for cash led the Fed to increase the money stock by buying assets and creating the corresponding uh, stock of money. That was true in the moment of the discovery that there was no miracle other than the one that would eventually unfold over 12 months and in the form of vaccines, which not enough people are adopting. But the discovery very quickly in the spring of last year, that demand for housing had shifted along a margin, although a small margin, a significant enough margin of homes that were in these more suburban or rural or exurban settings because of the unleashing of telework or remote work or, or work from home. That that phenomenon itself explains much of the, the shift to where single-family homes appreciated, detached dwellings appreciated, detached dwellings on the North Shore of Oahu, in East Honolulu, in Winter Oahu, in places like Mililani and Makakilo, you know, not in the urban core so much, that those neighborhoods were the ones where the price appreciation was sharpest and pulling up the average, so to speak, pulling mm -hmm. up the median with their unusually robust increase in demand for single-family homes in those areas for which, let's face it, you, nobody's going to let you build them, right? This, although the city council is not going to let you build them, the Land Use Commission is going to let you pay. You know, that make it a decision in the time frame we're talking about a few months after the onset of COVID. And so now that we're in a variant way, which was unexpected by way too many people. And I think it's going to push back on the recovery a little bit. But that doesn't mean it's going to reduce the demand for single-family housing. If anything, based on what's happened in the last year, it might actually reinvigorate mm. uh, that demand. I'd like, like you thought it was over and you went on your little vacation to Vegas. Your uncle brought the, the Delta variant back to Hawaii from Vegas. And now we're having to reassess. Is the recovery going to continue? Is it going to falter? Is it going to, is it going to get tripped up for a few months or a quarter? Will this Delta variant variation eventually abate in terms of its impact on COVID incidents and hospitalizations and mortality? We just opened public school. Good timing. Right when the, COVID, the, the Delta variant is exploding, we're going to put the only population that's not able to get a vaccination back in a classroom together with one another. And so we're just going to have to wait to see how that plays out. Or It's not going to be good, by the way. We keep making mistakes and then discovering what we maybe could have anticipated if we were thinking about it more clearly. And, if you know, I think we just move towards reopening so aggressively and, and cavalierly that we're going to be paying for it with this two steps forward, one step back, Groundhog Day kind of economic recovery. We'll, we'll get there. But, you know, Hawaii's in a deep hole. And now the Tourism Authority that says officially that their plan for Oahu is to have fewer visitors. So we're like going to extinguish economic activity because the COVID pandemic hasn't done a good enough job of it. That's where people's heads are at politically right now. And so it's going to be a very complicated recovery fraught with challenges and errors. I mean, that's just a mistake to extinguish jobs and income. You had to expect variants, right? You have to expect evolution. I did not expect that our worst episode with this in Hawaii would be in August of 2021. This is the worst time in this pandemic to date from a, an epidemiological standpoint. It's ironic that at the worst moment of this pandemic for Hawaii, it's amazing in that context that home prices are still appreciating at a 20% annual rate. My guess is they settle back to the appreciation rate that we observed pre-COVID, which for Oahu was 4 to 5%. We should be so lucky to go back to the pre-COVID appreciation, housing appreciation environment of the 20 teens, because right now, 
Hawaii's economy and Oahu's economy has not actually gone back to where we were. That was part of a conversation we had with Paul Brubaker of TZ Economics talking about the million-dollar single-family home prices we're seeing and what effect this latest COVID surge could have on the real estate industry and our economy. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Hawaiian Airlines, committed to the safety of passengers and staff with reinforced cleaning procedures and pre-travel testing options. Reservations at hawaiianairlines.com. Hubris, denial, power. Philosopher Martha Nussbaum sees all of those things leading to Andrew Cuomo's resignation as governor of New York. But most of all, she sees the monumental power of Pride. In her new book, Citadels of Pride, Nussbaum examines how a culture of mountainous self-regard perpetuates sexual abuse. That's on the next On Point. Beginning this afternoon at 2, following the world. This month happens to be National Water Quality Month, and today we spotlight creativity around an age-old problem, sewage. Hawaii was the last state in the country to ban cesspools. Pollution from these sources can threaten our drinking water in coastal waters. VI stands for Wastewater Alternatives and Innovation. The nonprofit is convening an upcoming conference tomorrow to focus on high-tech solutions on cesspool pollution. Here's Stuart Coleman, co-founder of VI. We're bringing key stakeholders across the state together. People in government, whether it's the county level, the state level, and even some federal representatives to talk about Hawaii's cesspool situation and try to find solutions. So we have tech partners from across the country that will be presenting and with real cool, innovative technologies. And then we'll be talking about policies also, like ways that we can expedite the process of converting you know, these 88,000 cesspools across the state. Yeah, I mean, that's key, right? I mean, we have this problem and there is kind of a deadline looming and has been actually. And the EPA has been actually fining entities because they just aren't complying. Yeah. And those are the large capacity cesspools that are, you know, over a thousand gallons per day and can go way up from there, you know. And so the EPA oversees Anything like injection wells or gang cesspools are often called, or these large capacity cesspools. But then anything under 1,000 gallons per day, which is most homes, that's like five bedrooms and under, the State Department of Health oversees that. And we have so many that need to be converted over to something more environmentally friendly. Yeah. When you think about 88,000 cesspools, and they produce 53 million gallons per day, untreated sewage that goes into our ground and the groundwater and affects our drinking water and surface waters. So it's one of the leading causes of water pollution you know, in the state. And Hawaii has the highest number of cesspools per capita in the country. So this conference then, is there a theme? We call it the Innovations and Sanitation Convening because we're convening all these key stakeholders and different worlds from technology to, like I said, government, business, funders, and trying to figure out financial solutions. And really, the emphasis is on innovation because we've been using a lot of kind of outmoded technology for a long time. I mean, cesspools were banned in most states long ago. Hawaii was the last state to ban them. And then we have to convert all of these 88,000 by 2050. And it's a very expensive, we're talking about, you know, this is a two to $4 billion problem for the state. So we're trying to find new technology and the new ways of financing to make it more affordable, more efficient, and better for the environment. And we've talked about the incineration toilets. You know, I think you went to Europe for that technology. What other places across the globe are doing innovative things? You know, the first kind of the most eye-opening thing I went to was in 2018. I'd been working with a coalition of groups that we helped form on the cesspool issue, but then I went to the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation 
reinvented toilet expo in Beijing. And Senator Chris Lee and I were invited to speak there. And we were both kind of questioning, we're like, why are they inviting us to speak? And then we realized, you know, they knew that Hawaii had the most cesspools in the country. And people across the world were just astounded that a place as beautiful as Hawaii with that you know, big tourism industry, you know, still had this many cesspools. And it was a problem. And so I think it was really encouraging because people are struggling with this issue around the world. But that was where I learned about these really innovative technologies that are revolutionizing sanitation. And so, you know, we've been using the same system for about 150 years, using clean drinking water to flush our waste away, you know, where people are starving and and dying from lack of clean drinking water around the world. And our levels are going down in Hawaii. And then we spend millions of dollars at municipal plants to separate that water, you know, from the nutrients, all of which can be recycled. So two of the technologies that we're using, Cambrian and and biomass controls, can recycle 100% of the water and the nutrients and have very productive uses for it that is much cheaper and better for everyone. At this conference, you know, you gather these, I guess, bright minds around the table just to say, look, how can we do what we're doing better? And what kind of funding is available? That is the $64 million question. (laughs) we're trying to figure out is how to finance it. Luckily, the Biden administration has really put a lot of emphasis on infrastructure, including roads, bridges, but that also includes water and wastewater. They realize that, you know, some of our systems, sewer systems are century old and decaying and falling apart. And they realize that over 21% of all the households in America are on individual wastewater systems. Um, and many of them, so they're not on sewer, and many of those are cesspools. So they realize this is a big issue that we've neglected for a long time. So we're hoping the federal government will come through, um, but we're also working with the USDA's Rural Development Office, the EPA, um, and then we're working with the state and the counties to find funds. And then, thank goodness, our federal legislators are also working with us trying to find appropriations. Um, to help fund this conversion plan. Right, because um, the whole idea is what we protect the precious drinking water that we have, our resource, our aquifers, and make sure that they stay pristine, and then figure out a solution to, yeah, the wastewater problem. Yeah, exactly. And so, you know, we have two approaches, and one is at the household level, you know, what are called IWS, Individual Wastewater system. And we're working with three companies that have new technology that's like the best in their class. You know, one's called Fuji Queen, one's called Elgin. And then we have a, a system that's like a passive bioreactor from one of our nonprofit partners, Rich to Reefs. And so those are at the home level. And we think these are the best available in their class and can really lower cost. Then we have another category that's decentralized wastewater systems that could take care of a whole community. Like there are a number of communities on the big island and across the state that, you know, the whole community needs. And so instead of building a huge multi-million dollar municipal treatment plant, you can do smaller ones that recycle the water and the waste. And so, you know, we think these are going to be much more affordable and better options for the state, especially because, we're moving toward an era with climate change and sea level rise that we have to start recycling all this. We can't just throw away water. You know, right now we pump it a mile and a half out to sea after we spend so much money treating it at our municipal plant. It's just kind of a waste of resources. The conference, who is it open to? This is folks that are are working on the wastewater issue, you know, whether it's legislative, policy-wise, financially, business people, because of COVID, you know, we have a limited capacity for in-person attendance. But if people, you know, are interested in this issue and want to get involved, they can contact us at info at waicleanwater.org. And we can pass on the virtual link so people can see that. For the general public, we're going to continue doing town hall meetings about this issue to do outreach and really keep people informed about the best options for converting in their homes and possible financial resources for them as well. 
And then do you have anything on your website that, you know, maps out some of the problem areas across the state? Just because of the nature of the business and we love puns. So we have a new section on our website called the Potty Portal. And that is directed for homeowners that anybody who wants to find out more about the conversion process, that is like the one-stop shop to, to go. You know, we're an environmental nonprofit. We just want to help homeowners with this very confusing and difficult process. So it lists all the wastewater engineers, available contractors that can help, but it also lists all the stages that you have to go through. And it depends on what kind of land you own, where you are, the depth to groundwater and all these things. And it's just a real useful guide and fairly straightforward for people. We want to remind people that water quality is our ultimate goal, clean water and watershed for, for people of Hawaii and this is one of the biggest sources of contamination to that. So it's something that we really have to deal with. And the good news is in the face of the, you know, the pandemic and our you know, high unemployment rates in Hawaii, we also feel that this is a field that's just you know, very ripe for building to create green jobs that are well-paying and really help protect our water quality. So you know, we're really trying to promote this as workforce development. So want to find out more, check out the potty portals. We have been talking with Stuart Coleman, co-founder of the nonprofit Wastewater Alternatives and Innovation Group. The Innovations Conference is slated for tomorrow. Look for links on our website later today. Well, that winds it up for us here. Tomorrow, we continue to hear from our county mayors. We check in with Mayor Mitch Roth from the Big Island. What do you think can be done to get the vaccine hesitant on board with the shots? Call our Talkback line, 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. You can also connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation.